want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount and specifically the Lord's Prayer. We're going to be looking at uh, just the first phrase in verse 10 this morning. Many years ago, uh, when I was in going through Bible college, I spent my summers in Kelowna doing construction. I was hired by uh, my dad's youngest brother, uh, my, uh, working for him. My dad is the oldest of ten, and so um, he's a lot closer to a- my age than, than my dad is, and so really enjoyed him. We had a lot of fun working together quite often. He was my boss. It wasn't always fun. But uh, one of the jobs that I worked on was uh, we were building a 48-unit condominium complex, an apartment building, four stories high. And, uh, you know, I was at the bottom of the totem pole, so I had sort of the, the grunt work. I, I carried a lot of wood. I dug a lot of holes, things like that. Um, but one of the things that I did as we built this apartment, I learned a lot too. Uh, there were 12 units on each floor. And what I discovered is that for the sake of soundproofing, we would frame two walls where, where uh, these apartments would meet. We'd frame two separate walls with a, an inch gap between them. And then as we built up, we would do the, the floor joist and then sheet the floor. And we would sheet it with that, that gap between the two walls below open so that you're walking around on the floor above and you can see exactly where every unit goes. There's that gap. And then the job that I was assigned for like forever was sticking soundproofing board called Donnacona into these one-inch little gaps. And this stuff had the consistency of sponge. It was, so I'd pick up these sheets of, uh, of Donnacona, eight by four, and I'd, I'd have to wiggle it, get it into the crack, and then I'd let it go and it would drop. And so I had to do this around every unit, 12 units on every floor, it was a fairly mind-numbing job at times, well, for much of the time. Uh, one particular day, my uncle was working nearby, but I was really oblivious. I was not paying attention. I was simply mindlessly grabbing sheet after sheet and dropping it down. You wiggle it, get it in the spot, drop it, and boom. Well, one of these moments, my uncle had the idea of sneaking up on the other side of the boards. I'd picked up an 8 by 4 sheet, and I was trying to get it into the crack, and he had snuck up right there. And I, I let go. Some of you see where this is going. I let go of that board and poof, it went down. And he went, ah! And, and I had heart failure. I don't think I have ever, ever been startled so badly in my life. You're right, Mary. I was just completely oblivious to what was going on around me, completely inattentive, and I I did not realize what, or in this case, who was right in front of me. This morning, as we return to our study of the Lord's Prayer, my, my goal, my hope, is that our eyes will be opened wide, that we would learn to live attentively, uh, that, that we would be aware of what is right in front of us, that we would become acutely aware and attentive to the reality in which we live, the reality of what God is doing even right now, right before us. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which we are walking through, is prefaced by the announcement of good news. The good news that in the coming of Jesus, a whole new order of existence is breaking into this world. The the future is spilling into the present. Heaven is invading earth. I have been contending throughout this series that 
that the good news, when the good news takes hold of a person, when the good news takes root in a person's heart, something happens. And that something that happens is described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity. Men and women with new characteristics, men and women with new purpose, new motivations, new behaviors. We are changed. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus giving us a new set of laws. It's not Jesus giving us the old lost cranked up on steroids no here in the sermon on the mount jesus is painting a picture a portrait of new a new kind of humanity gospelized humanity humanity brought into being by the power of the gospel when the spirit of god is having his way in us when the gospel has taken root now over the last couple of sundays we have been making our way through the lord's prayer which jesus teaches to us in the sermon on the mount Here, Jesus teaches his disciples. He teaches us how to pray. Jesus provides us with a model of Christian prayer, of gospelized prayer. As the gospel takes root in us, we become men and women who are to pray like this. Jesus teaches us to pray. He begins by teaching us to pray, Our Father in heaven. There's so much there, even in those opening words we looked at a number of weeks ago. Uh, first, we, we come to our Father. It, Jesus highlights the reality that though God is my Father and your Father, when we come to faith in Jesus, we are to pray our Father. There is this necessary, vital, communal aspect to prayer that we come together as His people and pray our Father. Jesus says that we are to address God, the creator of all things, the almighty one, that we are to address him with the the title Father, Papa. There, There is intimacy, that we are invited into that same intimacy that Jesus has with his heavenly Father. We're called to pray to our Father, our Father in heaven. And in heaven doesn't mean he's far away. It means he's everywhere we go. He's with us, and it speaks to his authority. We're invited to pray our Father in heaven. Last Sunday, we looked at the first of six petitions. The first three used the pronoun your. Your name. Your kingdom. Your will. Uh, last week, your name. Uh, your name. Hallowed be your name. To speak of God's name is to speak of who God is, the, the, the fullness of who He is, his, what He's like, His character, His power, His, his love, His grace, His glory. And Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. That is, we pray to the God that, that God would make himself known in all the earth as in heaven, that, that God would be known and treated as holy by all. Because we recognize that right now that is not the case, that there are those all around us who do not know who God is. There are those around us who reject God, who profane him who do not hallow his name. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make your name known. Reveal your glory. Show yourself within this world that all people would see. This morning we come to the second petition in the Lord's Prayer. Just the first three words of verse 10, but as we've done each week and will continue to do, I want to uh, share the whole Lord's Prayer with you at this point. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
This morning we're going to focus on the first phrase in verse 10, your kingdom come. And as we do that, I want to walk through this, those, those words, that phrase, this petition, uh, by asking four questions. First question, what does it mean when we speak of a kingdom? Second, what does it mean when we speak of the kingdom of God? Third, what other kingdom or kingdoms stand as rivals to the kingdom of God? And fourth, what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? So first question, what does it mean when we speak of a kingdom? Uh, We don't typically, you and I, we don't typically use the language of kingdom today. We speak of of, uh, countries, of nation states, but not kingdoms. That's pretty unusual. Uh, about three years ago, three and a half years ago, I had the opportunity to, to travel to India for a couple of weeks. And, and after my time in India, I flew to Turkey where I got to visit Mariam and Daniel, spend a few days with them. And a- along the way, my flight stopped in the middle of the Persian Gulf in this little island country that was called the Kingdom of Bahrain. That just struck me as really weird. I flew to the Kingdom of Bahrain. We don't think in those terms. We think about nations and countries. What does it mean when we speak about kingdoms? Well, there's a, couple, a number of things that we need to recognize. First, a kingdom implies a king, someone in charge, someone uh, with authority. But we need to say more because lots of people have authority, right? Police officers have authority. School teachers have authority. Parents have authority. Politicians, political leaders, they have authority. But in each of those cases, their authority is limited. Uh, police officers have authority to enforce the law. School teachers have the authority to assign grades, and at least when I was a kid, to kick you out when you misbehaved. Parents have authority to tell their children what to do and discipline them. Politicians, political leaders, have authority to uh, enact laws and govern in accordance with the law, even though some of them forget that. There are limitations. But a king has Supreme authority, it's kingly authority. Unlike a politician who can be punted out of office and lose their authority, a king has that authority by divine right. The doctrine of divine rights of kings or royal absolutism says that they have that right. They have that authority. What the king says goes. A second thing to note is that a kingdom involves a realm, a place where the king's authority is exercised. A place or a territory where the king reigns, where his power holds sway, where, where he rules. Thirdly, a kingdom entails subjects, those people who are subject to the king, who live under the authority, under the rule, under the reign of the king. So to speak of a kingdom includes necessarily those things. A king who has kingly authority, a realm, a place where the king's authority is lived out, and a people who live in subjection and subject surrender before the king. So that leads us to our second question. What what does it mean when we speak about the kingdom of God? And I want to begin here as we seek to answer this question, first by exploring with you uh, some things about the Jewish or Hebrew way of viewing time and history. You see, their perspective, the the, the biblical perspective on time and history, the Christian perspective on time and history, is unique when compared to what is held by many around us. Certainly in the ancient world, that was true for the Hebrews, for the Jews. See, other worldviews would understand history uh, often some as, as a series of chances, 
things would unfold, accidents, accidental events happening leading to who knows what. There was no purposeful beginning and no purposeful end and so no purposeful middle. Like it just, things happened and progressed and whatever happened, happened. There were other worldviews who saw history and time uh, rather than functioning that way, but in a cycle. This repetition, endless rhythm, birth, death, rebirth, death, perhaps reincarnation. This cycle, like the seasons, over and over and over again. But the Hebrew view, the Jewish view, the biblical view, the Christian view of history was different. History is not, according to the Bible, about about chance events, about things just moving uh, nowhere in particular, nor is it an understanding that history and time moves in a cycle, this endless repetition. Rather, biblically, history has a purpose. It, It had a beginning, and it has an end, a goal to which it is moving. And that goal in Jewish thinking and biblical thinking is, was and is the kingdom of God. Now, if I were to ask you this question, what is it, and I won't, you keep your hands down, but if I was to say, what, what did Jesus speak about more than anything else? I've already given you a clue, but in most contexts, when I ask, if I were to ask that question, what does Jesus speak about more than anything else? The, the answer often is something like love or grace or forgiveness, and certainly Jesus speaks of those things. Those are important things. They're great things. But by far, they're not what Jesus spoke about most. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God more than he spoke about anything else. So what exactly is the kingdom of God? Sometimes you might, yeah, the scriptures will say kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. Instead of using God's name, they would use the word heaven to represent God. So kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. What was it that the Jews had in mind when they heard that language, when they used that language? What was it that Jesus was pointing to when he announced the kingdom of God, when he spoke of the kingdom of God? Uh, D.A. Carson writes this, this cannot be a request, this prayer, your kingdom come, this cannot be a request that God's universal sovereignty will be exercised, for that is always in force. He's saying, this can't be asking that God would be king over all things, because God already is the sovereign king. He is the creator of all things. He is sovereign over all things. So whatever this prayer means, it can't be, Lord, do that, because that is already true. That is already the case. If you were here last week, we were taught to pray, hallowed be your name. That is, may your name be holy. Well, God's name is already holy. We're not praying that God would make it holy, but we're praying, we're taught to pray, God, make the holiness of your name, the holiness, the greatness, the gloriousness of who you are, make that known. Make that reality known in all the earth. Here, so to hear. Here Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. God is already king of kings and lord of lords. He is over all. He rules all now. He is sovereign over creation. So what exactly is Jesus teaching us to pray? When he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Remember what I've already noted about kingdoms in general. A kingdom means it includes, it implies the reality, the, the presence of a king with supreme authority. A kingdom speaks of a place where the, the desires of the king, where what he wants is happening. It speaks to subjects, those who are living under the authority of the king. The kingdom of God is the kingly reign of the God of scriptures, his righteous rule over his realm, over his people. 
The kingdom of God is present wherever God is acting as king, wherever his rule is exercised, wherever his subjects are submitting, wherever his subjects are living in obedience, wherever the things are the way God desires they, that they be, God's kingdom is present. The Hebrew prophets, the Old Testament prophets, spoke of a day when God would break into history and establish his kingly reign over all of creation. If we read the Old Testament prophets, we encounter that regularly. The the Jewish people longed for the day when this would happen, when God would intervene once and for all and rule without rival. And they believed that God's kingdom reign, what they longed for, would be ushered in by God's anointed one, by the Messiah on the so-called day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord, if you've read the Old Testament prophets, often speaking of the day of the Lord, they looked forward to that day that God's anointed when the Messiah would come and God would break into history and bring things to a close and those who have persisted in rejecting God, persisted in sin, would be judged and those who had surrendered to God and become his subjects would the evil would finally be vanquished and God's people would be vindicated and redemption would be known fully. The kingdom of God speaks to that reality, to a brand new order of things, uh, to the restoration of all things, to the restoration of human beings remade in the image of God, creation restored, sin and evil vanquished. Here's what we need to grasp. That's what God's people were expecting. That's what they were waiting for, this day of the Lord where the Messiah would come and wrap up history. Evil be vanquished and the redemption would be full. But what was the message that was announced when Jesus came? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. See, things happen differently than they were expected. The, the announcement of good news is that Jesus, in his coming, God's kingdom reign has broken into the present. See, the Hebrew people thought that history would end and then that, that, that on that day, but the reality is there's an overlap of the ages. This present evil age continues, but Jesus has invaded the present. Heaven has invaded the earth. Jesus' kingly rule began in his coming to earth and his life and ministry and death and resurrection. The kingdom of God is here. A whole new order of existence is breaking into this world, the future spilling into the present, heaven invading earth. I've been saying that. And here we see that. The good news is the announcement that in Christ's coming, that kingdom has broken into this world. Things are being set right. That's what Jesus' miracles are about. When we read the Gospels, Jesus' miracles are not just party tricks. Sorry, they're not party tricks at all. They're not just about getting attention. Jesus' miracles point to the, the fulfillment of God's promises, the restoration of all things. The blind see, the, the deaf hear, the lame walk, demons are cast out, storms are calmed, the hungry are fed. God in Christ is restoring all things, He is setting things right. He is establishing his kingdom. Not only that, but Jesus also reconciles those previously alienated. Most significantly, he restores us to right relationship with our Father. 
through our sin, through our rebellion, through our rejection of God's rightful authority, our relationship with God has been severed. And the Bible teaches us that, that the only way that can be mended is through repentance that is turning from our sin and faith in Jesus. Submitting to Jesus, receiving from Jesus His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness for our sins. Our world wants to say, hey, we're all okay. The Bible says, no, we are lost. We are under judgment apart from Christ and His grace. We're called to repentance and faith. And when we believe in Jesus, when we bow before Him, when we surrender to Him, the Bible tells us that we are washed, we are cleansed, we are purified, we are clothed with the perfection of Christ. We are brought into the the intimacy with the, the one we pray to, Jesus says, call him our Father. Our Father. We're adopted as His sons, as His daughters through faith in Jesus. But Jesus and His kingdom are not only about restoring us to the Father, but also restoring us horizontally. Where, where people foreign, formerly who were enemies can be brought into fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. We see this perhaps nowhere more powerfully than in, in the stories of two of Jesus' disciples. Matthew, you've heard of. We're reading the gospel that bears his name. Matthew was a sellout. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was in bed with the hated Roman Empire, collecting taxes from his fellow Jews, ripping them off to enrich himself. That's, that's Matthew's profession when Jesus called him. And along with Matthew in Jesus' disciples, and we can look at a number of other stories, but along with Matthew is Simon. Not Simon Peter, the other Simon. Simon the zealot. Simon the terrorist who hated Rome and was willing to engage in violence to overthrow Rome. Jesus calls Matthew in bed with Rome and Simon the zealot wanting to kill Rome and he makes them brothers, their disciples. To be there and to listen to those conversations would have been something. Jesus comes to restore all things. Relationships with, with the Father. Relationships horizontally. To, to heal what is broken. To cast out the demons. Jesus comes to bring healing. Restoration. The kingdom of God is about the restoration of all things. The setting of all things right. And in Jesus' coming, that's exactly what we see happening. We see that happening through His life and death and resurrection. But though it is already happening, it is not yet here in its fullness. When we read about the kingdom of God, we, we need to understand this already, not yet. Already, not yet. This tension we encounter in Scripture already in Christ's coming, already in the person of Jesus, already at the cross. The kingdom of God is broken into this world, but not yet is it fully seen. Not yet is it here in all its fullness. That leads us to our third question. What other kingdoms, kingdom or kingdoms, stand as rivals to the kingdom of God? And I want to answer this question by moving in two directions. First, I want us to think about our own lives, your life and my life, and our response to God and His kingdom. See, the kingdom of God is about God's rightful reign as king. His rule, His way, His agenda. It's about things happening the way He wants them to happen. It's about the things He wants to happen, happening. And so let me ask you this question. When we look 
inside, when we look at ourselves, what other kingdom stands as a rival to the kingdom of God? And the, the answer to that, if we're honest, is the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self. My kingdom, your kingdom. You see, we all want to call the shots for our own life. We want to exercise authority over whatever. We want to say what's good and what's bad. We want to determine what we do. The kingdom of self stands as a rival to the kingdom of God. See, the reality is this kingdom of self, we encounter it for the first time in the very beginning, the opening pages of Scripture. This is the sin of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve created, placed in a garden, and, and God gives them one prohibition. Don't eat from these trees. This tree in, this, in the middle of the garden. It, it is a sign, if you will, a sign of God's authority, a sign that they don't have ultimate authority. They're given authority and responsibility, care for the earth, be fruitful, fill it, be my regents in creation. But this you must not eat from. And Satan shows up in the story and like, really, did God say that? And you know, I think God's lying to you. And Adam and Eve are tempted to reject what God says because they think they know better. And they take the seat on the throne of their lives. They say, I'll call the shots, my agenda, my will, what I want. And they plunged all of humanity into rebellion and every one of us has followed them there. Every one of us wants to be king in our own life. We want to call the shots. We want to be the arbiter of what's right, what's good, what we should do. And yet if God is king, if God's kingdom is coming, what implications does that have for us? Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. So here's what we need to understand. If we are to pray this prayer, if we're to pray it sincerely, if we're to pray it honestly, it requires that we pray it on our knees in a posture of surrender. It requires that you and I open our hands and say, Lord, not, not my agenda. Not what I want. Not what I think. We, we need to lay aside any pretension that we are in charge. That we rule our own life. That we sit on the throne. And we need to bow before the one who alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. We need to surrender to Him. Because the kingdom of self will always stand in opposition to Jesus the King and His kingdom until we step off that throne. We will be in opposition to what God is doing. So that's answer number one to this question, what rival kingdoms are. Their second answer goes in a different direction. It's an answer revealed to us throughout the pages of Scripture in various places in various ways. The Bible tells us that there is another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of Satan. Jesus says this about Satan's intent. He describes in John's Gospel that he, the thief, wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The, the Bible tells us that there is a spiritual foe, a spiritual enemy who wants to destroy all that is good, who wants to destroy God's good creation, which includes you and me and all those around us. And Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to lead our world into wickedness, to keep our world in darkness. Jesus fleshes this out for us in a powerful event. Jesus in His ministry was casting out demons and some of the religious leaders who opposed Jesus 
made the claim that Jesus is doing this. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus, Jesus says, a kingdom divided against itself won't stand. And then he tells a story, a parable of a strong man. He says, you don't, you don't rob from a strong man. You don't plunder his house until first you come and you bind him. And once you've tied up the strong man, then you can plunder his house. Jesus tells that in the context of casting out demons. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that in my coming, a stronger one has come. That I have gone into Satan's house. I've gone into this world where Satan is at work. And I have bound him. That when I cast out demons, that is evidence that I have bound the strong one. That I am plundering his house. That I am rescuing people from the grip of Satan and pulling them out of darkness into the light. Jesus is the stronger one. Jesus is defeating Satan. Jesus, the true King, has come. And through His life and His ministry and His death and His resurrection, He is ushering in the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the, the doing of God's will on earth, the whole, His kingdom of goodness and wholeness and beauty. And the Bible tells us that Jesus dealt the decisive blow to the God of this world, to the kingdom of darkness, at the cross. At the cross... At Calvary, evil took its best shot. At Calvary, Satan took its best shot. At Calvary, Satan thought he had won. The kingdom of darkness rejoiced when Jesus took his last breath and died. The king is dead. They thought they'd won. But the grave could not hold Jesus. He rose victorious from the grave. Our penalty for our sin, for our rebellion, for our rejection of God, for all the wicked, evil things that we have done, for our problem of sin and alienation, that penalty paid in full. Jesus bore it all. And through faith in Him, we're clothed with His perfection. And He came out of the grave. Satan and His kingdom defeated Satan and his kingdom defanged. Still present and active in our world, but utterly defeated without question. Some of you perhaps are familiar with some of the history around World War II. Maybe you'll remember this illustration. I've shared it before. On June 6, 1944, the Allied forces launched a massive amphibious assault on mainland Europe. D-Day, we know it as. Thousands upon thousands died. But on that day, the Allied forces gained beachhead in Europe. And you ask any historian, and they will say that is the day the, war, the war's end was won. The war was won on June 6, 1944. The war carried on another 11 months. The Germans fought viciously. Many more people died, but the end was no longer in question. The cross stands as D-Day. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil was defeated when Jesus laid down His life and let evil take its best shot. And though they took His life, they could not keep Him dead. 
He came back victorious. Satan and his kingdom that stands in opposition to the kingdom of God utterly defeated at the cross. Jesus is King. His kingdom is invading the world, invading the earth. The final book of the New Testament is entitled the Revelation. Literally, the Greek word translated revelation is apocalypse. We hear the word apocalypse and we think disaster. So we've been trained to think. But apocalypse actually means unveiling. It's the image of pulling back the curtains. And so here's what we need to grasp. We are invited to pray for the coming of the day when, when God will pull back the curtains, where He'll lift the veil and what is presently hidden, what is presently unseen will be on full display. Daryl Johnson writes this, we are in what the Apostle Paul called the birth pangs of redemption. The baby has been conceived and is kicking in the womb and is about to be delivered. It is at hand. We are on the verge of delivery. And then he says this, this is our privilege. What an incredible privilege we have as the church to to serve the world as midwives, as labor coaches, praying your kingdom come. Oh, Father, pull back the curtains. Show. Make it visible. Make what is true already. Make it visible for all to see that you are king of kings, that your kingdom is invaded, that you have defeated the kingdoms of this world. Jesus teaches us to pray, Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus, step out from behind the veil. Lord Jesus, reign in my life. Reign in every corner of my life. Lord, You are my authority. You are my King and I bow before You. My calendar is Yours. My finances is Yours. My sexuality is Yours. Everything in my life is Yours. I give it to You. I surrender to You. I will obey You. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, come and reign in every corner of my life. And Lord, not only in me, but in every corner of this globe. All around us are people who are fighting against God. All around us are people who are rejecting God. All around us are people who do not yet know the God of the Bible. We pray, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. Jesus, may you reign everywhere. May people everywhere come to surrender to you, come to submit to you, bow before you, shine your light in the darkness, bring healing where there is brokenness and pain, drive out the darkness, set people free. Father, save. Father, rescue. Father, redeem. Your kingdom come. Father, reign on earth. Reign on earth now as in heaven. Reverse the effects of sin and the fall. Restore all that is broken. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring on your invasion. May your kingdom come. That day when I was installing Donna I was oblivious to what was right in front of me. I I didn't see Alf sneak up and stand like an inch from my face. He was there, and I failed to see. I failed to see till suddenly the veil was gone. We're praying. We're invited to pray. We're taught to pray, Lord Jesus, pull back the veil. And so we need to be men and women. We need to be people who understand, though currently unseen, already this is true. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, make it visible. Come in fullness. Bring your kingdom in all its fullness, Lord Jesus. Give us eyes to see. 
as we go through our days, as we live in this current cultural climate and all that's going on, let's be those who remember that Jesus is King of kings, that his kingdom is even now invading, and that one day he'll pull back the curtains and all will see that. Let's pray that God might manifest that more and more each day. It's been rightly said that this petition ought to come with a warning label. Annie Dillard writes these words I want to share. I've read them before. Some of you may remember them, but they're marvelous. Annie Dillard writes, Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Come, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. Pull back the curtains. Invade, Lord Jesus. Bring your rule to bear in fullness. That's what we're called to pray. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.